0: we 're going to uh, kind of take a, a, a topical message today in light of communion, but also in light of the fact that we 're nearing the, the very end of the gospel of luke and A few weeks ago, I paused in the Gospel to do a topical message called Resurrection Reflections," in which I wanted to drive home to you the importance of the resurrection in spiritual history and in the life of the believer and so I did that for you and I felt led uh, this Sunday to bring a topical message as well out of the heart of the text we were in last week in which Jesus talked about the promised resurrection. And rather than resurrection reflections, I want to share a message with you called Resurrection Confidence. It's a message that I have shared in part and portion throughout 40 years of Bible teaching ministry, and I want to bring portions of that to you today because I want you to leave this chapter of Luke with a greater confidence in the resurrection as a fact that you can bet your eternal life on. So we're going to do that, and then next week, the final verses, verses 50 to 53, Lord willing, on the ascension of our Lord. One text to go back to and anchor us, it is from Luke, from the passage we re- went through that this past week. It is Christ's description of the great plan of His resurrection as He taught it to them from the Scriptures, the entire sweep of the Scriptures as He opened their minds to understand the Old Testament. This is Luke chapter 24, verses 46 through 47. So let us hear again the Word of God. And He said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. This is God's holy, heart-calling word. May we hear it in great clarity today. Pray with me. Father, I thank you for the battle over the resurrection that I went through in my earlier life, And I thank you for the touchstone that it has become since then in my ministry life and my Christian life for 40 years. I pray that in this time, uh, we may gather around your word and gather around the evidences that give us resurrection confidence. I pray that this people will draw greater confidence today from what is preached and what is described, that it will give them power, and authority as they live out their christian life and defend their christian witness lord come O holy spirit and clothe me with power and your presence as i open your word in jesus name amen thank you you can be seated well as i touch on this topic we'll be moving through different passages of the scripture but we uh are going to be leveraging that passage in the the midst of Luke because Christ was thoroughly confident in the resurrection. He believed it was the great thread of truth that the scriptures were built around. And we studied that last week. However, our society doesn't look at it that way. I think you'd agree with me when I tell you that the resurrection is both the most controversial event in history, but also the most influential event in history. It's controversial. There's no question about that in a secular society that hates any reality that's pinned to the supernatural. But you can't debate the fact that it's also the most influential event in human history without question. It has influenced hundreds and hundreds of millions of people ever since that Easter morning. More than any other event, any wartime event, any decision of any president or emperor, any event in human history pales in the human impact of the resurrection. You are here today as living evidence of the impact of that event. Hundreds of millions throughout history have worshiped a risen Christ, and millions around the world today have gathered or will gather on the Lord's Day, the first day of the week as they celebrate it as Christians, and they will gather because they believe in this most influential event. Of course, we know that the Western world has put a pin in the timeline of how we uh, record and date history, B.C. and A.D., although the terms have changed a little bit due to secular bias, not making the birth of Christ as prominent. It's now the, 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 the Christian era, B.C.E., uh, but uh, be, to lessen the sting of the resurrection and the centrality of Christ, but make no mistake, history still hinges on that greatest and most influential event. But not only has it been a turning point in in the way we look at the history of our world and, and the societies upon it, it has been a turning point in human lives ever since resurrection morning and Mary Magdalene first caught sight of Jesus in the garden. Her life turned at that point, and millions and millions and millions of others have turned since then, and some are turning even today as they hear the gospel, come to believe in the risen Christ, invite Him by faith into their lives, and He makes no, mis- no He takes uh, no delay in changing their lives in the same way that the Scripture promised. So it's a turning point in human human lives. Every time a person accepts the Lord Jesus Christ, it's a human proof of someone putting faith in this great moment and someone, someone encountering the risen Jesus. When a life changes for Jesus Christ, as mine has, as yours has, as yours is changing, it is evidence of the supernatural presence of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. It was an awesome event. And yet, just as it is the most influential event in history, there are still many millions who disregard it. That's true as well in the human argument about Christ. And there are hundreds of thousands who not only disregard it, they are actively fighting for its destruction. And that's been the case ever since on that first Easter morning and the soldiers ran to tell the Jewish leaders that Christ had risen. They'd been eyewitnesses. And the first scheme was hatched, which we'll talk about today, to deny the resurrection. Ever since the first moments of the resurrection in human history, thousands and thousands and thousands of people throughout time have fought for its destruction. They will not stand for it. D.E. D.F. Strauss, an historian, said this about the resurrection, quote, down through the centuries, the resurrection has been the storm center of the attack on the Christian faith, end quote. And that makes sense you break apart the resurrection, you simply have a philosophy. And a philosophy can be shelved, as I told you last week, along with all the other philosophies of the world, and ignored, but a resurrection, not so easy. So that's why it's contested. It's a storm center. It's also a storm center because it demands a response. Jesus Christ is risen. That means he proved his deity, that he is God Almighty, the eternal God who came into human time and who blew out of that tomb and has now ascended and will alter your life if you invite him in by faith. And so the resurrection provokes a decision. You have to deal with it once the news of the resurrection has been given to you. You have to accept it or deny it. It won't let you go like many other facts of history will. You've got to make a decision about it. I had to make a decision about it when students approached me on the college campus and would not let me go with my false reasonings and my attacks upon it. And I knew that I had to come to grips with the resurrection as a reality. Maybe that's why it's become such a compelling point of conviction for me over the years since then. And so I want to talk about confidence in the resurrection a confidence that I have that Christians around the world have and I want to drive another layer of certainty into your mind as a Christian about why you can be confident I'm going to do that in two ways I'm going to talk briefly about some of the reasons for my confidence in the resurrection, a confidence that I've carried with me for 40 years, the reasons for our confidence in the resurrection. And then secondly, I'm going to talk about the relevance of the resurrection to your Christian life, just in brief form as we move into the communion experience together. And I think you'll recognize the relevance of the resurrection even to the communion table. So let's go, first of all, to the bulk of what I'm going to talk about this morning, the reasons for our confidence in the resurrection. There are so many, I could do a full week of teaching on it. Today, I'm just going to choose uh, three, three or four basic lines of thought. Here's the first one. Reason number one, the burden of the facts the burden of the facts. This proved inescapable for me, and I, I think it's inescapable to anyone who's intellectually honest. You see, the only logical, acceptable explanation for the facts we have about the resurrection claim concerning Jesus is that Jesus rose bodily from the grave. It is the only acceptable logical explanation for the facts that we have in history. Now, I want to point out as we, uh, as we go forward here that, again, I, I, I'm talking about the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus from the grave. I'm not talking about some of the knockoff ideas of resurrection. I talked about some of these last week. I'm not talking, for example, about the fact that some people believe Jesus simply experienced what people have called the migration of the soul, or he was raised in spirit. That is is a, a false understanding of the resurrection. No, the Bible tells us that in John chapter 20, and we went over it last week, as as Jesus, or two weeks ago rather, as Jesus presented himself to the disciples in the upper room in his risen body, he reached out his arm to them and he said, touch me, look at the marks in my wrists and my feet, know that I I am, I may, I've got flesh and bones, not as a spirit would have. So you can't get away with this unprovable and inconsequential idea that Jesus simply rose in spirit. That means nothing to the human condition. It's an imagination. I'm also not talking about Jesus simply being brought back from death and then going on later to die again. As I mentioned a couple weeks ago, there are a number of examples of that in the biblical record of people that had died and they were given their physical life back again. They came back into their old, their old body raised up, lived for a time, and then died again. No, we know that Jesus Christ died and then was fully pronounced dead and rose in a resurrection body. And so his resurrection is a bodily resurrection to a glorified body. Why is that important? Because the Bible says that Jesus is the first fruits of resurrection for those that believe in him. Why is the resurrection so important to me? Because it's a great example of what I can look forward to. It means that death is not an end point for me. It means that physical death is not an end point beyond which I just hope that I'm gonna go into some spirit world as some disembodied spirit and hope for the best, but I lose the reality of physical experience here. That's not what Christians believe. We believe that when Jesus rose from the dead, he rose in a glorified, everlasting body fit for eternity, that it's as physical as the one that just clapped its hands in front of your eyes. It's as physical as you are. Your very existence will go on, but it'll go on in an amplified way, in an amplified body, without the presence of sin, without the torment of a fallen world, and with endless possibilities of experience and the discovery of God. And if you're not saying amen yet, I'll say it for you. Amen. Amen. Thank you very much. The rest of you need to catch up. For crying out loud. When you talk about something that life-shaking, any, thank you. Okay. That's enough. You've proven that you are listening. I'm going to preach and I haven't got really into my first point. Hang on. Come on now. Oh, I appreciate it. Now I appreciate it. Thank you. So, so, so when you look at this, We're talking, that's why the resurrection is so battled against by the supernatural world. The enemy of your soul would love to keep you in one of these knockoff understandings of the resurrection. If you're grieving the death of a loved one today, he'd love to keep you in doubt about whether their future existence is going to be better than their hard tormented existence here was. If you loved someone who was racked with physical pain for years and yet loved Jesus and their life was a, was a migration of misery physically for years and you're battling with bitterness over God over that, the resurrection will cure that because it says that yes, even though he or she lived with massive physical torment or handicap or whatever it was in their years, but if they had trusted the Lord Jesus Christ, that is a shadow what they're experiencing experiencing now and what they will experience when they get the resurrection body is indescribable. You should be rejoicing. I'm going to stop there and go back to my notes. So the burden of the facts, let's get back on track here. The the reason this became so compelling to me is because I I discovered early in my Christian life, and part of my coming to to faith was facing this as well, that the alternate explanations cooked up by the world to explain away the resurrection are so faulty. So the reason for our confidence, number one, the burden of the facts, the only logical, acceptable explanation is that he rose physically from that tomb. And part of the reason I believe that is not just because the Bible testifies to it, but because all the other explanations for it are they just fall apart so let me go through i I have studied i believe eight different false explanations by our secular society to explain away the empty tomb and by the way i said that the vast majority of historians both christian believing and secular non-believing admit that on the third day the tomb was empty that's a basis for these comments here but the world has come up, and I've studied over the years at least eight faulty explanations. I'm going to give you just four today for the sake of time, and these are the ones that I hear the most often. And I'm going to show you the, some of the faults in each of them. So faulty explanation number one under this reasons for our confidence and the burden of the facts is what's called the legend theory. This is by far the most prevalent false false explanation for the empty tomb in our society. Most non-Christian people hold to this. I held to it. Maybe you, you did in your pre-Christian life. What is the theory stated? Here it is. The resurrection never happened. It was a legend perpetuated by the disciples. Christianity and the resurrection are both false. It's simply a religious construction put together by people after the fact. Well, there are three, three problems, at least, with the legend theory. The first is this. It's intellectually dishonest. What do I mean? Because historical records state that the resurrection happened. Historical records state the resurrection happened. You say, what historical records And I will say, these historical records. Then as a skeptic, you might say, well, of course you get that from the Bible, but I don't regard the Bible as historically reliable. Oh, really? Well, then you're going to have to throw out every ancient historical source that you've ever trusted along with the Bible. You're going to have to throw them all out. From the account of Caesar's Gallic Wars to, to everything else in ancient history. Why is that? You know where I'm going, some of you. As, as, as I looked at the, the facts regarding the reliability of the Bible as an historical document, and in fact, I reviewed them this week, there is no other ancient record of history that has more reliability than the Bible, both the Old Testament scriptures and the New Testament scriptures particularly the New Testament record in terms of what they call textual attestation. In, number, in other words, the number of ancient texts and, and, and writings that are, that, are, that, are, that are the texts of the Bible, the number of manuscripts is the word I was searching for there. Thank you. Manuscripts. It completely outnumbers the, the, the number of manuscripts for every other ancient piece of literature that historians trust today. At last count, I believe we had over 24,000 manuscripts in our possession for over every verse of the New Testament, just as an example They go back very, very closely, closer than to any other ancient historical fact in terms of its documentation. They go back within a hundred years of the events themselves, 24,000. There is no historical record of anything you can read in ancient history that comes close to that kind of manuscript attestation. Historians will tell you the more manuscripts you have and the closer the oldest ones are to the actual date of the events, the more reliable the description of the events are the new testament stands and towers above all others textual transmission it stands above all others those who handled the new testament text because it was an item that described the very faith of their lives instituted methods of translating and transmitting and transcribing that text that absolutely outrun any other ancient text And so we have the most reliable rendition of what actually happened, more than any other relational, more than any other ancient text. In fact, I've read scholars who band together the most significant ancient texts about ancient history, all in a group, and they can't compare with the New Testament. In addition to that, archaeological attestation is huge here archaeological attestation every day it said that the, a shovel is driven into the ground of Israel today it turns over a proof of a biblical truth so what do historians who are honest have to say about this well let's take a look at Luke for example the text that we've been in there was an, an individual who was an historian a secular historian his name was Sir William Ramsay, and obviously in England He was so intent on disproving the resurrection that he spent 15 years attempting to undermine Luke's credentials as an historian. At the end of that, he was forced to admit he failed. And he wrote this, quote, Luke is a historian of the first rank. This author should be placed along with the very greatest of historians, end of quote. That secular historian understood that and understood that the issue was bias, not fact. Ian e. Blakelock, professor of classics at Auckland University, said this quote, I claim to be an historian. My approach to classics is historical. And I tell you that the evidence for the life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ is better authenticated than most of the facts of ancient history. End of quote. You say, I just don't want to believe it. Well, you had it, you better join a long line of people that are denying what even secular scholars say. One other. Clark Pinnock from McMaster University kind of sums up the problem. He says, quote, there exists no document from the ancient world witnessed by so excellent a set of textual and historical testimonies than the New Testament. Skepticism regarding the historical credentials of Christianity, listen to this, is based upon an irrational bias. What's he pointing out there? That when people say you just can't trust what the Bible says about the resurrection, they're they're rejecting the most reliable historical record on the planet because they have a bias against the supernatural. We talked about this last week. That was my bias. It's the bias that you have to jettison and you have to open your worldview and your understanding of our world system to believe that the supernatural could be possible. Here we have a document and and testimony that says it is. So intellectual dishonesty with the legend theory, this was not invented. No, there's historical testimony tied to it. And by the way, all the authors have integrity because they prove their integrity in blood. Now, if you still have a struggle with this as a skeptic, and I can understand that, I've also researched over time 10 non-biblical historical sources from ancient time on record confirming the birth, the life, the teaching, the existence of Jesus, the the, the trial of Jesus before Pontius Pilate, the crucifixion of Jesus outside Jerusalem. Two of them affirm the fact that his resurrection was believed and preached One of them even documents the darkening of the sky at midday and the earthquake that rattled across Judea in the midst of the crucifixion. Secular Roman sources. So the legend theory, you cannot say that this was invented by people out of thin air. There are documents that teach otherwise. Secondly, it's intellectually disabled. Because if you want to believe that this kind of a false story was invented and perpetuated and has gone for 2,000 years and is believed in fact and principle by multiplied millions still to this day, my friend, you believe in the greatest example of mass deception in history. It is simply psychologically and personally not that this would be a lie that would go unmasked. So it's intellectually dishonest, number one. The legend theory is is intellectually disabled, number two. And thirdly, it's intellectually doubtful. Why is that? Because Jesus did live and Jesus was crucified outside Jerusalem and he was buried in a tomb owned by Joseph of Arimathea. And when Peter went a preaching some 50 days later, We call it the day of Pentecost and he was in the great temple courtyard and he began to preach that this Jesus whom you crucified has risen and he's alive. The entire Christian faith could have been destroyed that afternoon. Why? If he had not risen and his body was still in that tomb, all the Jewish leaders had to do was step out of the crowd, put up their their hands and say, just a minute." We'd like you all to walk with us outside the temple. We want you to walk with us down through the streets. We want you to go out the gates of the city. Follow us. We're going to go down to a special place. It's Joseph's tomb. They would have led them by the thousands down there, and they would have seen. The rock was still there. The Roman seal was still axed over the top of that rock, and they would have said, this is all a lie. To prove it to you, we have permission to break the seal. They would have broken the seal. Then they would have gotten 20 men and they would have moved that two and a half ton stone rounded rock up the incline and, 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 and bolted it in place so it was out of the way. Then they would have invited people to walk right on in and tell them what they saw and they would have seen the dead moldering body of Jesus of Nazareth. If this was a legend, it would have been disproved on Pentecost morning. All they had to do was produce the body. If the body had been there, they would have. The legend theory, intellectually dishonest, disabled, and doubtful. Faulty explanation number two, the conspiracy theory. Also, well known because it is the earliest false explanation of the gospel. It was authored on Easter morning. How do we know this? Go in your Bibles and you'll see it on the screen to Matthew chapter 27. Read with me Matthew chapter 27. Jesus had been placed in the tomb earlier in the text. We see in verse 57. He'd been buried in the tomb. The first day had passed. The next day was the day after the day of preparation. It was the Sabbath and the chief priests. So Jesus' body had been in the tomb over a day at that point. The chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, sir, we remember how that imposter, speaking of Jesus, said while he was still alive, after three days, I will rise therefore order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead and the last fraud will be worse than the first. So they believed that the disciples would conspire to steal the body basically. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers, go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. The Roman seal was placed in the middle of the stone. It had uh, uh, trailing uh, ropes, if you will, to the four corners so you could see if the stone had been altered. If you altered that in any way, you were immediately executed by crucifixion upside down. The stone, of course, was already present and they set a guard of a dozen Roman soldiers, each trained to defend six square feet again, around them against an, an entire invading army. It's, it's uh, highly trained. So in the midst of all this, now the third day arises and verse 28, chapter 28 verse 1 immediately follows resurrection morning. What had happened between chapter 27 and, and verse... Uh, 65, 66 rather, and chapter 28, verse 1. I'll tell you what happened. The resurrection happened early on that resurrection morning. Jesus came came alive and moved through the grave clothes and exited the tomb. He was gone. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Jesus having risen, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. We went all the way through their story in the last few weeks. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. Just love that. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And look at this. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. So who were the first visible witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus. The guards. They saw the angel, and presumably they also gazed into the tomb. So they're flattened on the ground, became like dead men. They're in a state of shock, of supernaturally being overwhelmed at what they have seen. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He's not here for he's risen. As he said, come see the place where he lay. He takes them in and shows them the empty ledge and the grave clothes as though a body had moved right through them. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead and behold, he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I've told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. Who's the they? It's, 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 it's the women. Now notice this. Go down to verse 11. While they were going, who's the they? The women heading up the hill to go to Jerusalem to tell the disciples that he's risen. Behold, some of the guard went into the city. So the women were running one way to go back into Jerusalem to find Peter and John. The guards were hooking it the other way. Where were they going? They were going into the city to tell the chief priests all that had taken place. So when they screech into the the high the high priest's room there in verse eleven, what were they say? They said they would have said, you know what? What Jesus prophesied, it actually happened. He did rise. We saw it with our own eyes. There was a mighty blast of light. An angel came, rolled away the stone, and we saw inside that the angel was right. Jesus was gone. He has risen. So they, they just stated the facts. Now, they were terrified over this whole experience. Now, we see what happens next. Verse 12, rather than believe, Isn't it interesting? Jesus said in one of his parables one time, somebody can come back from the dead and they still won't believe. Rather than believe that Jesus might have risen from the dead, rather than take the few minutes to walk out to the tomb themselves, hardened in their unbelief and protecting their their political position, they immediately hatched the conspiracy theory. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. You see, the Roman soldiers were under a, a, a sentence of execution if they failed in their po- at their post. That's what they were terrified of. The leaders said, we'll, we'll, we'll buy off Pilate as, with as much as he needs to overlook this. We'll give you guys as much as you want, never to tell the truth about this resurrection, but instead spread this false story. And the conspiracy theory was birthed and money talked. Verse 15, so they took the money and did as they were directed, and this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. This is why the conspiracy theory is the oldest false theory, false explanation for the resurrection that had been seen by the eyes of these soldiers themselves, the conspiracy theory. How do you state it? The disciples stole the body and faked the resurrection. Well, there are a few problems with that, like with the others. Here's the first one. The disciples could not have stolen the body. Historians have looked at this, and so many have concluded that it was personally impossible for them to have done it. Eleven terrified fishermen predominantly holed up in an upper room, fearful of an arrest with the doors closed and the windows bolted. They would not have suddenly transformed into a group of men who were able to attack and defeat a squadron of trained Roman soldiers, trained to defend six square feet around them on every side from an entire invading force, disciplined and under the knowledge that if they failed, they would be executed. No. The sentries would have been far too overwhelming a force. And by the way, the sentries had been told to look out for them. They wouldn't be sleeping, and the first time a recognized disciple came up the hill, he would have been taken out. There was also the seal, which I've talked about. It was, if you tampered with it, automatic crucifix, death by crucifixion upside down. If that seal had been tampered with, who do you th- think suspects number one would have been? The disciples. They knew this. They were not of the temperament of the character. to. Der- to, to overcome that fear. And then finally, the stone, it's been pointed out that it was about two and a half tons in weight. And the stone that had been placed over the tomb was was rolled from a, a rock incline that was carved into the front of the tomb. There was just a little wedge at the, uh, holding it in place above it, and the wedge was let go. But even then, I read a source this week that said that 20 men were required to get around that stone to ease it down safely and into the, into the bottom hole to, to fully cover that tomb that stone was designed to be rolled down once and never to be moved again yet the bible here tells us in matthew 28 that it was rolled up on a hill the greek word actually means rolled away from it wasn't just moved so you could peek around it it was rolled away some say even thrown away from the tomb entrance two and a half tons no gathering of disciples could have done that let me put it this way if they wanted to move that stone they would have had to whistle for all the guards to come and help them (laughs) if that helps you understand how ridiculous this theory is that works Secondly, the disciples would not have stolen the body. I have already told you two things. They were not looking for the resurrection. They didn't understand it, and they didn't believe it was going to happen, so they wouldn't have gone and created a false understanding of it. And number two, they were panicked and barricaded in fear. And thirdly, as has been pointed out throughout history, the disciples would not have stolen the body because they would not have then gone out and died for a lie. So this false conspiracy theory was started the morning of the resurrection by, by the Jewish leaders themselves. And to show you, as, as, as Matthew wrote his gospel decades later, he said, this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. To show you how it moved throughout history in the year 314 AD, so hundreds of years after this fact, it was still being spread by the critics of Jesus. The disciples made it all up. They conspired and stole the body. It's all a fantasy. Well, there was a church leader, and historian named Eusebius, and he answered that argument that was spreading against the church, even in the year 314. Here's part of his answer. Okay, if you want to believe that the disciples stole the body and then created the lie of the resurrection, he said, sure, if you're a disciple. Why not? Let's band together to invent all the miracles and the resurrection appearances appearances which we never saw, and let's carry the lie even unto death. Why not die for nothing? Why dislike torture and whipping inflicted for no good reason? And even if we don't convince anybody, at least we'll have the satisfaction of drawing down upon ourselves the punishment for our own deceit. End of quote. I kind of like the fact that sarcasm was an intellectual tool even back in the year 300. (laughs) Faulty explanation number two, the conspiracy theory. Sorry. Here's the third, and I'll get you. There's two more. The apparent death theory. This one has uh, had legs over the last 200 years. H.G. Paulus, a critic of Christianity, put it into writing in 1828. It uh, got a, a resurrection, if you will, uh, in, in the 1970s when I was a student, uh, when a guy named Hugh Skonfeld wrote a book called The Passover Plot. It was resurrected again in the widely discredited uh, group of writings called The Jesus Papers in 2006. And there's an oblique reference to it in the storyline of One of the all-time flops of movies called The Da Vinci Code in 2006. What's the theory stated? Jesus didn't really die on the cross. He faked his death. He escaped from the tomb and persuaded his followers that he had risen. If you want to go a little farther with Tom Hanks and his version, he left Israel with his secret wife, Mary Magdalene, and their secret child, went into Provence, France, I guess consumed a new identity, lived for a few years and died, and his human ancestors are alive to this day. The apparent death theory. Well, there's one big problem with that, and that is that historical documents say that Jesus was undeniably dead. Historians are unanimous in talking about the fact that crucifixion was non-survivable. It was 100% effective as a method of execution. It was designed to be slowly but terminally effective. Think about the agony of the torture that Jesus underwent. The Roman process added scourging to that where the the back of your body was taken off with a bone and, and jagged metal-tipped whip, as we've seen in graphic detail in the Bible record. Before that, Jesus became the, 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 the target of human beatings, the Greek says, that different groups of soldiers took turns smashing him in the face with a closed fist. He was exhausted. He was dehydrated. That was before he got to the cross. The nails through the, the wrists and the feet, the lifting up and placing of the top Cross post of the cross onto the, the, the standing post was commonly something that dislocated the shoulders or at least put them into an agonizing state. And then the only way the person survived was slowly pushing themselves up for every breath on the nailed feet and with the nailed wrists. And so it was a slow motion strangulation. Jesus Christ went through all of that. Oh, he was in a terminally effective execution, experience. But just to make it clear, in John chapter 19, we see the this theory, which apparently was rolling around then too, the apparent death theory, that Jesus wasn't fully dead on the cross. John puts a nail in it, or actually a spear through it, in John chapter 19 and verse 33. The Jews wanted those on the cross to die before sundown on the sabbath to keep their law and so since crucifixion often took a day or two for it to finally execute its victim they told the roman soldiers to go out and break the legs or the roman soldiers offered to break the legs of those on crucifixion hill so they couldn't push themselves up anymore and they would die within a matter of minutes they broke the legs of the thief on the left and the thief on the right implying they were still alive But when they came to Jesus, in verse 33, when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. These are professional executioners. These are very possibly the same detail that had been charged all day long with making sure he died. They saw that he was dead. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. It's interesting. I read an historical source recently that said that one of the first lessons a Roman soldier was taught with his weaponry was how to perform the death stroke with a spear. He was taught which side to do it in, which set of ribs to put the tip of that through, how to flatten the blade so it went in effectively, and how it pierced both the pericardium and the heart itself. I read another source that backed this up. Uh, This last week, Quintilian, a Roman historian, records that stabbing with a spear in this manner was standard procedure to ensure death. I read a, 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 a pathologist this last week who'd become a believer who analyzed the death of Christ and demonstrated that without question what John saw was evidence of a pierced pericardium and the piercing of the muscle of the heart itself. There is no question in this doctor's mind that this represented death. It's gruesome to tell you this, but John had to go into that detail. Why? He says, he who saw it has borne witness, verse 35. His testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth that you also may believe. John was working against one of the false explanations of the resurrection, and that was that Jesus really didn't die. So, an historically reliable document tells us in medical fashion that Jesus died. The execution was final. There was no hoax. I've got to hurry now. Here's the last faulty explanation of the many. Here's just these. These are the top four. You can see why they've reappeared in history. The last one is the hallucination theory. We've talked about this a little bit over the last couple of weeks. The theory stated, the post-crucifixion appearances of Christ were all simply hallucinations. I don't know how to tell you this, folks, but I just can't see it. Some of you got that preacher's joke right there just now. Good for you. The hallucination theory. Well, there are problems with this that have been pointed out through the years. Number one, it violates the laws of probability. What do I mean? I taught you a couple of weeks ago that there are at least 10 different episodes recorded in the scripture of Jesus appearing to others between his crucifixion and his, his ascension. 10 different episodes in 10 different settings, more or less at 10 different times, more or less some separated by many days, some separated by many miles, 10 different groups of people, some individuals One group of over 500 that Paul wrote in one of the earliest renditions of the historical analysis of the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, written just within a handful of years really after the crucifixion, he said that of those 500 that saw Jesus, most were still alive, able to refute anybody who wanted to say that what they saw wasn't real. So the law of probability about this falls apart because if you want to believe that they all hallucinated the same thing, you're going to have to believe that in 10 different episodes, in 10 different settings, at 10 different times, when 10 different groups of people of up to 500 people at once, they all saw the same thing. Now, if you want to believe that, I'll tell you two things. Number one, don't drink the water in Palestine. I'm telling you right now. (laughs) And number two, if you want to exert that much faith in the natural condition of people's minds, why don't you just go ahead and exert that much faith in the supernatural possibility of Christ having risen? Come on. Now you're starting to practice blind and mindless faith. We practice informed and historical faith. Come on over. Second, it violates the laws of psychology. that has been pointed out by experts in psychology that in order to have hallucinations of this type, there must be expectancy and belief for an hallucination to occur. I've already told you, the disciples had neither one. They weren't expecting a resurrection, and they struggled to believe when they were told that it happened. What happened? What did they say when the women burst into the upper room on resurrection morning and said, he's risen? Ah, it's an idle tale it couldn't have happened. Thomas gets maligned for saying, unless I see him. Well, all the disciples had the privilege of seeing him before they believed and in fullness anyway. He says, I will not believe unless I see him. So the mood in all of this speaks against the idea. So my conclusion about these theories is that all these false theories fall apart. The legends theory, the the conspiracy theory, the apparent death theory, the hallucination theory. And I come back to the, to the, the premise I began this point with. Only one explanation stands. Jesus rose bodily and is alive today. Now, quickly to the other two reasons. I said there are three reasons for belief. Reason number two, the changed lives of the disciples. This is something that those who have studied human sociology and history have always been intrigued with. You have Peter changed in, in, in a moment of human history from fleeing coward to fearless preacher. Fifty days, that's all it took. James, the brother of Jesus, changed from a skeptical and hostile disbeliever in his brother's Christhood, if you will, who was so separated from his brother Jesus that he didn't even appear at the cross. But oh no, he was given a special appearance by Jesus on resurrection day. And he went from skeptic brother to stalwart saint and went on to suffer for the gospel and to pay dear prices for it. Thomas, we've already talked to him, about him from doubt all the way to death, I believe, on a North African beach years later for the gospel. 11 of the 12 uh, disciples died martyrs' deaths, murdered over decades of time for something they knew to be true, not something they knew to be a lie. John Stott put it this way, they signed their testimony in blood. You see, it must have been true. Another thing I saw this week as I restudied this issue, historians are somewhat mystified by the fact that in, in the weeks after the crucifixion of Jesus and beginning and the day of Pentecost, and then in weeks and months and mere short years after this, suddenly hundreds of thousands of people at one time in the, throughout the Roman Empire began to believe in the same thing. And you take a look at history... And that's not something that happens. Religions don't appear like that and then move with such conviction throughout a society. It takes a long, long, long time for religion to develop. And scholars have looked at this sudden balloon of people in the Roman Empire that in a short span of time all came to believe in the same thing. Why? Why? here's my belief, they all began to meet the same Jesus because he's risen and therefore he encounters people. The third reason is my changed life. I look at it now and I realize that uh, the changes in my life point to a risen Christ in my life. I remember when I finally shared my faith with my, my skeptical father, a trained psychiatrist and He looked at me with great disappointment, but he said, this won't last long. He was a student of Freud who understood that religion was a self-constructed fantasy. It was a human structure designed to give meaning in a moment of crisis. He said, this won't last long. Well, it's lasted over 40 years. It lasted throughout my relationship with him. It was one of the last things that I brought into his mind and hearing in the last days of his life. Oh, it did not disappear. Now why? Well, they were tied to objective fact, these changes in me, you see. They began to witness changes in my life, my family, my friends. There was a dimension of joy. You say, oh, I was just emotional. You know, you wanted that to happen. No, it actually was tied to objective fact. What objective fact? John five fifteen eleven. Jesus said, I have, I have given you a joy that will be full. My experience matched what the Bible promised, and it has over 40 years. The peace that began to invade my tormented heart that had been suicidal to that point. I found an objective reason for it when I read John fourteen twenty seven when he said my peace I shall leave with you not as the world gifts do I give unto you. Oh the changes in my life were tied to objective fact in an historical record by the promises of a risen one. They weren't something I invented or manufactured and they have outrun the test of time and trouble I might add power began to emerge in my life to overcome the battles of character that i was going through and i learned that the power in my life was tied to romans 6 6 when the bible tells me that now that christ is within me and the person of the holy spirit is there to empower me i need no longer be a slave to sin began to see that to be true and the forgiveness that i poured over my father and so many others in what had formerly been a life of bitterness I found a reason for that, too, in Psalm 130, verse 4. It began with my Lord, for the Bible says, there is forgiveness with thee, O God. Forty-plus years of consistent experience over time and trouble. I'm sure you can say the exact same thing. You see, my changed life tells me there's a new life within me. And millions of others have experienced exactly the same thing you know i've been privileged as a pastor to be able to bring the gospel in many different well not many but a number of different cultures and countries and whenever i've done it two things have struck me number one that when i fellowship with christians they can come from any culture any language any political background any age i've gone into central america i've been in west africa i've been in eastern europe And we all are immediately able to bond because we all know the same person. Maybe you've noticed that if you've traveled. The second thing I noticed is that the the message of the gospel even when it's spoken through interpreters to people I've never met, from cultures I've never known, the message of the gospel is powerful, and this resurrection message changes people, and I've seen it happen among communists in Central America when I spoke on university campuses in Mexico and was challenged by the leaders of communist cadres along with my team to back up what I was saying about the risen Jesus. We saw some of them turn to Christ. I remember meeting many former radical Muslims when I visited and encouraged pastors in Nigeria, West Africa, under great persecution. And I remember the shining faces of these who had left radical Islam, and now they were devoted to Christ and suffering for it. And I remember lost hearts opening when I had a privilege of going to to preach in an evangelistic service at a church in Slovenia that we helped start as a church. Some of you know this. Back in 2017, I had one chance, and I treasured that, to bring one message. I thought, what shall I do? It's a challenge situation. I'll be speaking through an interpreter. I only have a limited amount of time. I don't know my audience. I know there are many that are skeptics there, there are many that are battling to come out of a formerly communist, very materialist society to believe in the possibility of the supernatural. And I chose to to bring a message on the greatest thing Jesus ever said. I've preached on it here. The greatest thing Jesus ever said is recorded in the in the Gospel of John nineteen thirty. It is finished. And I came before that audience, and I preached that sermon, wondering about the fruitfulness of it. Two years later, I received a letter from a student who had been in that meeting. Dear Joe, remember the sermon you gave on November 5th, 2017? Remember the guy in the front row that was crying like a baby and accepted Christ on that day? Well, almost two years later, that same guy got to share his testimony at an English camp, which was what we used to support, where Slovene young people without a faith experience at all would come and they'd learn English, but they'd also be around Christians and hear the gospel he says, that same guy got to share his testimony in an English camp. That guy was me. And I focused on the same verse that you were focused on in that sermon, John 19.30. It is finished. I'm glad to inform you that after sharing that testimony, a couple of people came to Christ. I'm not taking any credit for it. I'm just happy that God worked through me that day the same way he worked through you in 20 17. The power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the greatness of the resurrection, is undeniable because millions of others have experienced it as truth. It vaults culture, it vaults time, it vaults politics, it vaults everything. You can be confident in it. I close with the last point, the relevance of our confidence. Why is this so important? Well, two things. Without the resurrection, all you have to live for is death. How's that for a blunt statement in church? It's true. And the more people contemplate their life, the more they're not content with that. Leo Tolstoy wrote in, in, in a confession, the great Russian author he said my question that which at the age of 50 brought me to the verge of suicide was the simplest of questions lying in the soul of every man a question without an answer to which one cannot live it was what will come of what I am doing today or tomorrow what will come of my whole life why should I live why wish for anything or do anything It can also be expressed thus, if there is any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy, end of quote. He had it right. Without the resurrection, there is no ultimate meaning to your life. But with the resurrection, there is every ultimate meaning to your life. Jesus is the resurrection and the life as was read before us. He who believes in him shall live even if he dies. Communion was given to us to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Do you notice what's implied in that phrase? He didn't just die. He rose so that he will come again.